Well, my name is Blake Jennings. I'm the teaching pastor over at Southwood. All of us teaching pastors are rotating for the next couple weeks. So it's great to be with you this Sunday. Before we jump into the book of Ecclesiastes, I thought it might be fun to tell you a little bit about what we, some of the teaching pastors, get to do during the week when we're not preaching because, like, really, we only work an hour a week, right? We just work when, we, when we're preaching. So what do we do the rest of the time? Well, um, actually, it does take some time to put these messages together, but when we're not doing that, the greatest thing we get to do is teach the fellows here at Grace Bible Church. So the fellows are a group of uh, about 20 recent college graduates who come onto our staff team for two years to receive biblical and theological training from us, and then to participate in our ministries and get real-world ministry training before they head out into whatever the next role or calling that God has for them. So I'd like for you to get to meet and hear from a few of our fellows here this morning. My name is Michael Holman. I studied civil engineering at Texas A&M with the intention to design and develop communities. But by the end of my senior year, I felt guided into a different direction. Could I develop communities through vocational ministry? My name is Gavin Sledge. While at Texas A&M, I was in the Corps of Cadets planning to join the military. However, I had the opportunity to serve as a camp counselor at a summer camp. Investing in the lives of high school students made me wonder if full-time ministry was a fit for me. My name is Chamela Pinella. Being discipled by fellow at Grace was one of the most impactful aspects of my college experience. Just as someone had done for me, I wanted in turn to invest a couple years of my life in facilitating the spiritual development of college women. I chose to be a fellow at Grace because of the investment I knew I'd receive from the staff. As a fellow, I have relationships with pastors who value my spiritual development and care for me deeply as a friend. After I graduated from Texas A&M, I chose to stay in College Station because of the strategic role this place is playing in the gospel movement across our country and around the world. God is doing something unique here, and I wanted to be a part of it. Being a fellow at Grace, I'm not just an observer on the sidelines, but I'm an integral part of the team, carrying real responsibility and doing real ministry. At Grace Bible Church, we believe in developing the next generation of leaders who will reach our community, our campus, and our world for Jesus Christ. For over 20 years, our Fellows Program has provided hands-on ministry experience, mentorship, and the opportunity to help lead and shape the culture at Grace Bible Church. Our partnership with Dallas Theological Seminary provides an unparalleled theological foundation for our fellows that will serve them for the rest of their lives. Have you ever wondered if you'd be a good fit for full-time ministry? Come find out. Well, if you've ever thought about whether vocational ministry could be in your future and you're getting ready to graduate from Texas A&M, we'd love to have you think about coming on our staff and being one of our fellows. For a couple of years, you'll get seminary training and seminary credit and you'll get to study the Bible and do real world ministry with us. We have openings in college ministry, youth ministry, children's ministry, worship ministry, creative arts and missions, all kinds of opportunities that you could jump into. So if you're interested, if you even want to just know more about it, you can go onto the website, grace-bible.org slash fellows. Applications are due February 21st, so it's coming up soon. So we'd love to have you think about that. Okay, time for Ecclesiastes. You can turn to chapter 2 of the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we're going to talk about a subject that is both important and practical. We're going to talk about money. 
Now, you may not realize this, but money is actually really important to God. When Jesus showed up, 25% of his teaching and one out of every three parables was about money or wealth. So he talked about it more than almost any other subject. So it's important to God. It's also clearly important to our culture, the culture, the society that we live in. Just look at many of the most popular songs and how many of them have the word money in them. Here's a few. 1960, Money, That's What I Want by Barrett Strong. 1973, Money by Pink Floyd. That's a classic. 1976, Money, Money, Money by ABBA. Not quite as classic. 1985, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. 1990, Money Talks by ACDC. 2007, I Get Money by 50 Cent. It's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many songs about money because it's what our culture is thinking about all the time. Most people spend most of their time every day thinking about money. We strategize about how to make it. We dream about how to spend it. We think about how to keep it. We worry about how someone might take it. Money is what makes our world go round. It's what drives politics and education and science and technology. That's why you can't make it through life without spending a lot of time thinking about money. And so it's no surprise that Solomon's going to talk a lot about money in the book of Ecclesiastes. So money, wealth, it's going to be the next idol that we will confront in the book of Ecclesiastes. You might recall the big idea of the book of Ecclesiastes, it is designed to crush our idols. That's why God gave us this book. What is an idol? It's not a little statue of wood or stone. An idol is simply any person or thing other than God that you cling to for significance, satisfaction, or security in life. Any person or thing other than God that you cling to to find satisfaction, significance, or security in life. Ecclesiastes crushes all the idols of this world so that we're left with nothing but God to cling to. And so the idol of the morning is money. We're going to look at what Ecclesiastes has to say about the idol of wealth. It's an idol that most of our culture worships. Now let's be clear. No one actually worships money. Money's kind of ugly. Little dollar bills and coins. No one really cares about that. What we worship is what we think we can buy with money. And there's two idols that people believe they can get with money. The first is satisfaction. People worship money because they think it can buy satisfaction for their souls. This is the kind of person who tends to overspend. Is constantly buying things because he just can't wait to unwrap those things. But as soon as he's unwrapped the new thing that he's bought, he's already thinking about the next thing he wants to buy. He lives for the purchase. That's what gets him through the day. That's what gives him hope in the future. So that's a person who worships money to find satisfaction. But there's a flip side. There's a the person who worships money to find security. This is a person who tends to oversave. It's very hard for him or her to part with money, whether it's spending it on himself or on other people, because in their mind, money equals safety. 
They hoard money because it's protection for them. It provides security in life. Now, both extremes qualify as idolatry because whether you're worshiping money to find satisfaction or whether you're worshiping money to find safety, you are turning to money to provide something that only God can give you. Okay, so this morning where we're going to start is we're going to look at the bad news. We're going to talk about why money makes a lousy God. So we're going to begin with the limits of wealth. Solomon is going to begin for us by tackling the first reason that people tend to worship money, to find satisfaction. So if if you tend to overspend, you're trying to satisfy your soul with what you can buy, Solomon wants you to understand, first limit to wealth, it can never satisfy you. Money and the things it can buy can never fill that heart in your, whole, in your soul that wants to be satisfied. So let's look, chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Solomon says, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. As best we can tell, Solomon would have been a multi-billionaire in today's dollars. Really, the, the thing that you want to get your mind around is there was nothing that Solomon could not have. Nothing in the world that he could not take. Not only was he king of a nation, but all the surrounding nations brought tribute to him, which meant literally he had everything he could possibly want, all wealth, all possessions. And yet here's what he concludes. Look at verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. No profit, meaning Solomon's life was not any better after he had accumulated all of this stuff than it was before he had all of this stuff. There's no advantage in it for him. He was no happier with all of this wealth. That leads him to conclude. Turn to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 10. Here's the principle he concludes. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Solomon's point is there is not enough money in the world to satisfy the human heart. It is impossible for money to satisfy you. That's because it is not in the nature of money or possessions to satisfy the human soul. It's like trying to satisfy your thirst by drinking sand. It's never going to happen. You can drink the Sahara Desert's worth of sand. It will never satisfy your thirst because it's not in the nature of sand to satisfy thirst. So it is not in the nature of money to satisfy the human soul. That's why so many rich people go buy so many ridiculous things. They're trying to satisfy a thirst that can never be satisfied. So there's a Saudi prince who had 37 cars in his garage, but 37 was not enough. So he went out and bought for car number 38, a diamond encrusted Mercedes Benz worth $48 million. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is the dumbest car anyone has ever bought. 
you cannot drive that car because what's going to happen as soon as he pulls up to a stoplight? We're going to all grab our tire irons and come running at him trying to pop one of those things off. If he wants to go to H-E-B in that car to buy groceries, he's got to put a security guard in the trunk to watch the car. And imagine having a fender bender in that car. Talking about a $2 million bill just to fix the bumper. It's a silly car. It's a ridiculous purchase. Almost as ridiculous as this $16.5 million iPhone. That is a 26 carat diamond for a home button. Beautiful phone. What's the problem? Do you see it? That's an iPhone 5. That is already two years out of date. So college students who have an iPhone 6 off the shelf, you have it better than this silly rich guy. All of his diamonds could not protect his phone from becoming obsolete. It's a ridiculous purchase. Money has made fools of so many people. We look at these examples of conspicuous consumption and they make us laugh, but they should also make us sad. So why are these guys buying silly stuff like this? Because they are slaves to their wealth. They're like addicts trying to get another hit. Okay, 37 cars didn't do it. Maybe the 38th one will. Money has made fools of them just like it's made fools of so many of history's richest people. People like Solomon, people like John D. Rockefeller, arguably the richest man who's ever lived in America. His, the fortune that he had when he died in today's money would be worth $336 billion with a B. So crazy money. And yet he concluded, I've made many millions, but they brought me no happiness. Not, not they brought me little happiness. No, they brought me no happiness. Henry Ford, the guy who built Ford Motor Company, worth billions of dollars, too late in life, he realized I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Money cannot satisfy. And so I just want us to be really clear. If you're the kind of person who thinks that your life will finally be better once you buy that next thing, the house you're dreaming of, the nice car you're dreaming of, the vacation home you're dreaming of, the new gadget you're dreaming of. You need to understand, if money and possessions could not satisfy Solomon or Rockefeller or Ford, who had more billions than you can count, then it's guaranteed that your money and possessions will never satisfy you. Never going to happen. Money and possessions cannot satisfy the human soul. But a lot of us in this room are probably tempted the other direction. When we look at wealth, we're not trying to find satisfaction from it. We're the opposite. We're trying to find security in it. We're the kind of people who tend to oversave. We save money. We build up a nest egg because it feels like protection to us. It feels like security to us when we check our bank account and it's flush. So Solomon has a message for us people who worship money to find security, he wants you to understand in no uncertain terms, money can never make you safe. Money does not equal security. My dad and I, a couple weeks ago, were replacing siding on his house. And, and the wall that we were replacing, it looked good. You walk up to it, the paint was new. It looked nice. It looked strong. There were no holes in it, no stains on it. It looked great until you leaned on it. And then the siding collapsed because it had rotted from the inside from water damage. That's what happens to the person who is leaning on money to make them safe. 
looks good because the world tells you, big bank account, you are secure. But then you lean on it, and when you least expect it, it collapses. Solomon wants us to understand that money makes a poor God because it cannot buy the security that you crave in life. And he's going to give us a few reasons why money can't give you security. Look at verse 11 for the first reason. Solomon says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Solomon's point in saying that is that the more money you have, the more people there are to consume your money. So you got to have more people that you're paying to protect your money, right? You got to pay bankers and investment counselors and you got to pay a bank and, and a storage facility to, to, to watch over your stuff and security guards. You got to pay more money to people to protect your money and you got to pay more money to people to care for all of your stuff. You got to pay for people to clean your stuff and you got to pay for mechanics to work on your cars and you got to pay for builders to build your homes and you always got to pay money. The more money you have the more money is going out you're paying all of these people and just wait till the government shows up they're going to take their share and the more money you have the more they're going to take and think about how the more money you have not only are you having to pay more people but you have more people trying to get their hands on your money wealth complicates relationships because now your kids are your heirs And your friends are your entourage. And you don't know whether people really like you or just like your money. That's why the the old adage is true that a simple life really is a blessed life. There is an advantage to a simple life. You don't have all this money going out. You don't have all these people trying to get your money. So money, it's, it's a poor God. It can't make you secure because the more stuff you have, the more money you have, the more of it's going out. And the second reason that Solomon gives us, look at verse 12. He says, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. The, the hardworking middle class man goes out and, and works all day or the woman goes out and works all day to earn money for their family and, and they sleep well at night. Now that's not always true, but generally that's often true. But compare that to the incredibly rich billionaire CEO running all of these companies, managing all these investments, thinking about all of these assets. He's having a hard time sleeping at night because he's constantly worried about what will happen if he makes a bad decision. He's constantly worried about people trying to steal him or def- from him or defraud him. He's got all of these things keeping him up at night. Again, a simple life can be a blessed life. You have less things that you're worrying about. Vanderbilt, another one of our country's richest people, said that the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Now, boy, that's a first world problem. Most of us would like that problem, to care for $200 million. But Vanderbilt is proof that wealth does not equal peace. Wealth can actually increase stress. It can increase anxiety because there's so much more that we have to care about. And then finally, Solomon tells us why ultimately does wealth keep you up at night? Why does it make anxiety worse? Well, look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. 
Wealth can make anxiety worse because wealth can always be lost. So here you got a guy who worked incredibly hard his whole life to save up money for himself and his kid. Here's an oversaver. He thinks that money is a secret to security for his family, but then he makes one bad decision, one bad investment, and he loses it all. That leads Solomon to conclude in chapter 9, verse 11. He looks out at life and he realizes prosperity does not always belong to those who are the wisest. Wealth does not always belong to those who are the most discerning, nor does success always come to those with the most knowledge, for time and chance may overcome them all. You are not master of your money. Time and chance rule the day. You could lose all of your wealth overnight, whether through a bad decision or just bad luck. 1946, World War II ends, and in the nation of Hungary, the populace, the economy, was struck by what economists call hyperinflation. That's where the price of goods skyrockets so much that your money becomes worthless. And so over the course of 1946, the daily inflation rate in the nation of Hungary was 200%. Now let me put that in perspective for you. What that means is that if you woke up this morning and went to the store to buy milk, and let's say a gallon of milk cost you two pango, that was the name of their currency, then you go to sleep, wake up the next morning, and that same gallon of milk costs six pango. You add it up, and and it adds up to 13 quadrillion percent interest per year. That's astronomical. You can't really get your mind around that kind of inflation rate. So let me show it to you in pictures. Here's a shop owner sweeping all of his money down the gutter. Then there's a woman lighting her cigarette with a one billion pango note. One billion B. They just kept increasing the value on the currency because it was getting out of control. So let's be clear. Let's say that you were a Hungarian businessman or businesswoman. You worked your whole life. You built a massive business. You did everything right. You hired employees. You made inventions. You produced lots of stuff. You saved all of your money for 40 years. You get to the end of your life and you're incredibly fortunate. You're a billionaire. You have saved one billion Hungarian dollars. And then 1946, your money isn't even worth the value of the paper it's printed on. You are wiped out overnight. And just so we're clear, that can happen anytime, place. There have been 55 hyperinflation events over the course of the last hundred years. So your money is not the security that you want to think that it is. Time and chance overtake all of us. Your money could be lost overnight. If you lean on it to find security in life, it is like a rotten wall that will fall when you least expect it. So money, it cannot buy you satisfaction, nor can it buy you security. But even if you are one of the lucky ones who gets to keep his or her money all the way to the end of your life, the third thing that Solomon wants you to understand about the limits of wealth is that it can't go with you. Money doesn't travel well. When you die, you leave it all behind. All of your money, all your wealth, all your assets, all your possessions, they stay here. Now, the Egyptians did not believe that. The Egyptians thought that your possessions and your wealth go with you into the next life. And so when a king, a pharaoh of Egypt died, they would build a massive tomb and put all of their wealth inside. That's actually what the pyramids are about. 
Pyramids are just big tombs for kings. So they would fill them with the king's treasures so that he could take that treasure with him into the afterlife. So when King Tut, for example, when he died, he was very wealthy. They buried him in a golden coffin surrounded by full-size golden chariots so that he would have a lot of gold to take with him in the next life. His tomb was opened in 1922 and guess what they found? All the gold. All the gold was still there. He took none of it with him. A fortune in gold sat under a rock for 3,000 years unused because it does not go with us. It doesn't go into the afterlife. You cannot take it with you. So no matter how much you spend on houses or cars or possessions in this life, none of it's going with you into the next life. Okay, so you look at what Solomon is listing out for us. Money makes a lousy God because it can't satisfy you. It can't make you safe. It can't go with you. And worst of all, it distracts you from what can. Money is dangerous. It's not evil, but it's dangerous because it can distract you from those good things in life that actually can satisfy you and make you safe and go with you into the next life. Solomon tells us this interesting story late in the book, chapter 9. He says, there was once a small city with just a few men in it, and a mighty king attacked it, besieging it and building strong siege works against it. However, a poor but wise man lived in the city, and he could have delivered the city by his wisdom, but no one listened to that poor man. So I concluded that wisdom is better than might, but a poor man's wisdom is despised. No one ever listens to his advice. What Solomon is observing here is just a rule of life. Human beings are easily distracted by wealth. We tend to pay way too much attention to rich people and way too little attention to poor people. We're like monkeys. We get distracted by shiny things. And then we fail to see the things that really matter. In this case, wisdom and truth and salvation. The city didn't see those things because they were so caught up in the externals of wealth and money. This is why Jesus tells us you cannot serve two masters, God and money. That's right. You you can't. You can't serve God and money. If money is your idol, if you're living to make money, if you're living to save money, if you're living to spend money, if that's what you're chasing in life, it will pull you away from God. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. You can't serve two masters. If you chase money, if you make an idol out of money and what it can buy, it will necessarily pull your eyes off the things that really matter in life, like God and love and relationships and wisdom and truth, the things that really matter. That's why money is is so dangerous. Not evil, but dangerous. So that's the bad news. Money, it's limited. If you make a God of it, it will make a fool of you. If you try to cling to it for satisfaction or security, you will be left as empty as Solomon was at the end of his life. So now let's turn to the good news. Money is limited. Wealth makes a lousy God. But Solomon wants you to understand it's not all bad. While money, while wealth makes a lousy God, it makes a great gift. A great gift. That's where Solomon goes next. He wants you to understand that money is an incredible gift from God. Look with me, chapter 5, verse 18. 
chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all of one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. What Solomon is telling us is that money is actually a gift from God, a gift that's meant to be enjoyed. Now, this is hard for some of us to wrap our minds around because we've seen all of the bad things that are done for money or with money. And so we tend to think of money as somehow bad. It's like it got dirty somehow in, in the, its use in the world. But God wants you to understand money itself is not bad. Money is actually a gift from God to you. It's a gift that God means for you to enjoy. That's part of the reason God gave you money. It's part of the reason he gave you wealth is to buy things with it that, that you enjoy in life. And so when you save up your money and go to the store and buy something nice that you've been looking forward to, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. When you go out to a nice restaurant and you buy a steak, you should not feel guilty about that. That's part of the reason God gave you money. To spend it on things that you enjoy. So for me, I buy Julie Roses, I buy my kids Legos, and I buy myself car parts. Now, do we need those things? Well, it's Valentine's Day, so yes, Julie <laughs> needs roses. <laughs> that one's not negotiable. But my kids, they do not need another Lego. We have an infinite Lego count. I just, I we have more Legos than I ever want to see. And for me, car parts, I mean, really, most of them just make my car faster. No one needs that, but I enjoy it. And so it's good to spend money on things I enjoy because we have a kind God. You understand that about your father? He's kind. He likes to look down and see you spending his money on things you enjoy. That makes his heart happy because that's part of the reason he gave you money. The second reason that God gave you money. It's a gift to be enjoyed. It's a gift to make life a little bit easier. A little bit easier. Solomon tells us in chapter 7, for wisdom provides protection just as money provides protection. Now, not security in the absolute sense. We talked about that. Money can't buy you safety, but it can make life a little bit easier. You can think of money as grease on the wheels of life. Makes life work a little bit easier. So this last year, air conditioning went out. If that would have happened 10 years ago, that would have created incredible stress for me. We had to replace the whole thing, and I didn't have that kind of money 10 years ago. I would have had to go take a loan out to get our AC going. That would have been incredibly painful. But over the last 10 years, we've been fortunate enough to save money for emergencies. So when it happened, what did I do? I picked up the phone, I called a dude, and he fixed it. Done. Money fixed that. Because that's part of the reason God gave you money, to make life a little bit easier. To fix some of the problems that money can fix. Uh, so far, we really like the stuff on the board. <laughs> we really like to think about money being a gift that God wants us to enjoy and to make our lives easier, be nice, fit in it here. But you know where this is headed. There's a third. <laughs> third item on the list that balances the other two. Money is a gift from God that comes with strings attached. Turn to chapter 12. Turn to the end of the book, the most important verse in the entire book, chapter 12. The conclusion of it all. This is where the entire book builds. The most important verse, verse 13. 
says, The conclusion when all has been heard is, Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Okay, so why do people worship money? Because they think that it will get them satisfaction and safety in life. But we know better. There is only one place to find satisfaction and security. That's God. He's the only one who can provide the satisfaction and security you crave. So how do you find it from God? How do you find, how do you find the security that you need, the satisfaction that you need? Well, God tells you, fear and obey. Fear and obey. Fear and obey. I think the easier way to put it, this is how I put it to people. What God is telling you is trust him and obey him. That's how you experience a life that is full of security and satisfaction. First, you trust him. To trust God, what that means is that you've stopped trusting your money (laughs) to help you make it through life. You're going to trust God instead. And and in particular, you're going to trust his son, Jesus to be your source of deliverance and security in life. I love how Paul puts it. He talks about Jesus with economic terms that fit our topic this morning really well in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now let's think about what those words are saying. Jesus was rich, not in a metaphorical way. He created the universe, so he owned it all. Richest of rich people ever. And yet he became poor, and that also is not metaphorical. He became literally poor. Born in a stable, placed in a feeding trough. He had no possessions. You realize during Jesus' ministry, he was a homeless man, right? He had no home. He had no possessions. When they crucified him, the soldiers gambled over his possessions. What were they? Some clothes and a jacket. That's it. That is all he had in the world. He became utterly poor and homeless. Why? So that you could be rich. Not rich monetarily, but rich in life. Jesus became poor so that he would be neglected, abused, and crucified so that he could die for your sins, rise so that you could have life as a free gift. So God is calling us to trust in his son, not in our wealth, not in the security that we falsely think it provides. He's calling us to trust in his son as the source of life and forgiveness and peace and joy and eternal satisfaction. So here this morning, what you need to understand first and foremost is what God wants of you is trust. He wants you to just turn to him and say, God, I'm done trying to earn eternal life. I'm done trying to earn heaven. I'm done trying to earn your love. I'm dead. I'm done trying to earn significance. I'm just going to trust Jesus for that. I believe that Jesus, the richest dude ever, became completely poor for me so that he could die for me, so that he could rise for me, so that I could have life as a free gift. And that's what makes my life valuable. Not my money, not my possessions, but Jesus. So what God wants of us first is trust, but second, obedience. It's to fear him and obey his commandments. Now, you're not obeying so that you can have life. That's a gift. Eternal life is an absolute gift from God. You can never lose. You're obeying God so that you can have the the satisfaction in life that you crave. How do you live the life that you want? Through obedience, you obey your creator and then you enjoy satisfaction in this life. And so God is calling us to obey him in every area of life, including with our money. And so how do you obey God with your money? Well, best place I know of to take someone to answer that question is 1 Timothy 6. It's very specific. 
Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all good things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future. This provides the correction that we need for what we said earlier. So when you go to the nice restaurant and you buy a steak, should you feel guilty about that? No, so long as you have shared. No, so long as you've shared. Should I feel guilty about buying car parts? No, so long as I have first shared with those in need. That's what comes first. First, I share my wealth with God, with his people, with his church, with those in need. I share my wealth and then I can enjoy what's left. That's, that's how it works. We look first to be rich towards God and towards other people. We look to whom we can give and then we're free to enjoy what's left. Okay, so this morning what I want you to be thinking about as you go out from here, while this message is fresh, I want you to think about two questions. First question that I want you to ask yourself is, which of those kind of people am I from the beginning of this message? What's my tendency? We all have a tendency. Am I the kind of person who tends to overspend because I am trying to find happiness in the stuff I buy? Or am I the kind of person who oversaves because I'm trying to find safety and security with my money? I want you to, to figure out which kind of person you are. And then if you're married, I want you to have a talk with your spouse. I want you to talk that through because chances are you're different. Chances are good that at least on the spectrum, you're different. And I I don't want you to just laugh about it, although it is funny, but I want you to think about what's behind it. What's a lot of times you have a man and a wife and, and in my marriage, I'm the spender, Julie's the saver. That's just how we are. Sometimes it's reversed. But what's really helpful is to go further and think about why. Why do I tend to overspend? Well, because there's this lie in me that believes that somehow my life will be happier with that new thing. Why is Julie always saving? Well, because there's a lie in her that believes that if the bank account has this much money in it, life is going to be okay. So you go beyond the simple and you think about what are the lies? What are the idols that we're worshiping there? And then you talk about that. Okay, so figure out which kind of person you are and and talk about that. And then the most important part, repent of that. So this afternoon, I want you to repent. I want you to go before the Lord and confess, God, this is why I'm always saving. God, this is why I'm always spending and that's wrong. Now, maybe this particular purchase wasn't wrong. Saving itself isn't wrong. You should save. But you're confessing the attitude that's there. Saying, God, this is sinful because I've been clinging to my money to provide something only you can. So I want you to repent and confess that idolatry to God. That's the first question I want you to ask. Which kind of person are you? Second thing that I want you to ask, and if you're married, talk to your spouse about this. Who can you share with? Who can you share with? I want you to be able to go to a restaurant tonight and enjoy a steak. I want you to be able to go to the store and enjoy buying something you like. But the only way for that to happen is for you to find someone to share with. So who can you be sharing with? Now, some of you are saying, Blake, this is such not my issue because I got no money. Okay, let's just remember. It's not saying share $1,000 a month. It's just saying share something. 
Chances are, even if it's five bucks, you can share something with someone in need. God doesn't care about the amount. He cares about the attitude. So all of us can share something with someone else. And so I want you to ask yourself, who can you be sharing with? How can you give God your money? Giving it to his church, giving it to missions, giving it to a neighbor or a family member in need. Maybe you know someone in the community that you're going out to steak. They can barely afford beans. Maybe you can share with them. That is a sacrifice to make, but you realize by making that sacrifice, then you can go out and enjoy the thing that you're purchasing because you first shared. Money and wealth are a gift from God to you. They're not bad. They're not evil. They're God's kindness to you. Whatever amount you have, God has given it to you as a gift to be enjoyed and to make life a little bit easier. But it's a gift that comes with some strings, some expectations. First, that you don't worship it. That you don't rely on it to make you secure or satisfied in life because it will disappoint you. It will leave you as empty and depressed as Solomon was. Second, it's a gift that you share. It's a gift that you give to other people in need. Let's pray and ask God to help us think about our money rightly. God, we thank you for your many gifts. We praise you that no matter how much we give, we will never outgive you. You are the first and ultimate giver because you have given yourself. You've given your son. We praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus, that though you are rich beyond our imagination, you chose to become poor. You did not have to. That was your free choice. You became poor and homeless and destitute for us so that you could die for us and rise for us so that we could have eternal life as a gift. We praise you that the most valuable thing in the universe has no price we have to pay. We thank you that you've paid the whole price so that we could have life as a a gift. We thank you for that. We praise you that beyond just giving us eternal life, you've given us wealth, you've given us money. We thank you for that, but we pray that you would help us not to worship it. God, it's, it's so hard for us not to cling to our money because this world tells us that satisfaction and security are found in money. I pray that you would help us to see that for the lie that it is. I pray that you would help us to be willing to share our money and give our money to others. I pray that we would be quick to give. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would glorify you with our wealth, that we would praise you by sharing it with other people. I pray that when the world sees us as a church, they would see people who are, who are generous and, and who are at peace, even if the economy tanks, even if the news is bad, that we could be at peace because we know that money is not where security is found. I pray, God, that we would cling to you alone. We pray that you would crush our idols, that you would leave us with nothing but you to cling to for the significance, the satisfaction, and the safety that we crave. I praise you that you are a God who does not ever disappoint. You are good and gracious. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Go and be at peace.